Hey, it's Landon. This is part two of our discussion about ketamine with Dr. Gary Andalfato. So if it seems like we're starting in the middle, we are. So go back and listen to part one first. So um, should we be talking about intubation? Uh, yeah, intubation. Yeah, because so I think that's what is your, something. Do you use it for intubation? Certain types? Why? Absolutely. So, so you can think of procedural sedation, intubation, and I'll throw in you know rapid control of agitation. Right. It's really all yeah. just procedural sedation. Okay. Okay. It's all the same, right? You're achieving rapid, complete control. It's to just perform a procedure. Exactly right. right. Oh, and so, that's true. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. Intubation is a procedure. Yeah. It yeah. totally is. So, so you want to, if the goal is to achieve complete control, the key is to use the high dose. You Once again, you want to avoid that middle ground. And this is where ketamine is, again, really peculiar because not only does it have a different effect depending on the dose you pick, but it also has a ceiling effect. So describe what that is. Yeah, they call it the dissociative threshold. So we know that as you start in low dose, you get analgesia. As you start raising the dose, you get past 0.3, 0.4, per kilo. People start to become disconnected. That's called partially dissociation, partial dissociation. As you get to one, and especially after 1.5 milligrams per kilogram, IV, this is where people become fully dissociated. Your brain is now completely disconnected from your body. The reason that's important is because if I give 1.5, let's say 2 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine to someone, mm -hmm. they will be completely dissociated. Now, let me give you 10 times the dose. I'm going to give you 20 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine. Mm -hmm. The effect I get will be identical. Because you're completely dissociated. You're already, yeah. you, you can't, can't get, get more than... You completely. cannot become more completely yeah. dissociated. <laughs> There's no other drug that I know of that behaves like that. Like, if I, if I did that with propofol, or if I did that with an opiate... You get more and more build up, right? More and more apnea, more and more yeah. hypotension, more and more something, more and more in effect. Ketamine's not like that. So so that's why I tell people if you want complete control, go big. Mm -hmm. The times where I've seen people run into trouble with ketamine is that we have this natural human tendency, like I want to be, you know, quote unquote careful. So yeah. I want to give them a little less because that mm -hmm. in my mind I'm being more careful. Right. Whereas the exact, which probably comes from the midazolam opiates, because every other drug fall yeah. where it's like we can always give more, but we can't take it back. Every yeah. every other drug we know right. behaves yeah. that way, but ketamine doesn't. So by trying to be careful, that's where you're going to end up in the uh, middle can, scary zone. Can, I, I was going to say yeah, in the weeds. In the weeds. <laughs> yeah, there was a four-letter word I was going to use, but, in, <laughs> but, the, but weeds is a better word. Yeah. So. So if I want complete control because I'm going to intubate this sick person, mm -hmm. then I'm going two milligrams per kilogram and above. Right. Because okay. I want it to be reliable. Be sure. Yeah. 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 If a person comes in wild and swinging, there's four security guards and five police officers that are getting the snot beaten out of them by this mm -hmm. agitated, drug-intoxicated psych patient, you're going big. You're not holding back. Right. Because if you end up in that middle zone, that's actually counterproductive. So, right. so you want to go big. Two milligrams per kilogram IV, five milligrams per kilogram IM. Right. Yes, I said that correctly. Five milligrams per kilogram. And yeah. so, so my experience with that was at a, a small hospital where I gave 500 milligrams IM. 
and actually had to phone our, our uh, transport advisor and, and just verify that again because it was sort of over some text messaging and stuff. And I'm like, really? 500? I've never heard of this. And he's yeah. like, that. And, used... and it comes in 500 milligram vials. You're not having to give 10 mils IM. Mm. It comes in very high concentrations for that purpose. So Where'd you get that? <laughs> I want it. I know everyone wants it now. Yeah. Yeah. See, we're we're actually limited by our, the concentration we can have in the right. hospital. Yeah. This is where other countries, uh, like the Aussies, have it better than us. This way, they, you can get more concentrated forms of ketamine. Hmm. Um, and veterinarians have an advantage too. So, but we're limited to the fifty milligram per milliliter. So you're oh, talking wow. about giving. So you are talking about a pretty high volume. Yeah. But yeah. we just split it up into syringes. Yeah. And you know, taking down an agitated person or doing a procedural sedation, it's always a team sport, right? Yeah. So you split it up into, you know, a couple of syringes. You can give. How much can you give into a buttock or a thigh? Four. Well, that's podcast number two. <laughs> uh, yeah. Three. Three. Three mils. So three mils. So three is easy. And, so yeah. And you can probably do three and a half and make it yeah. three syringes. When yeah. you have enough people, and we yeah, we always have enough people. I actually yeah. I like to split it into four syringes. Yeah. And I say to someone, One per limb. your right arm, your left yeah. arm, your left leg, and I'm right leg. Yeah. Everybody ready? Go. Ready, set, go. And you walk in the room and you plunge it into each limb right through the clothing. Yeah. yeah. Because this person's wild and swinging. You just yeah. totally... And yeah, and then you walk out of the room and in five minutes you, they've gone from gorilla to pussycat. Right. Yeah. And then you can go and then you can actually take care of the patient. Right? And this is the big advantage of the rapid control. Yeah. I, I veered into um, agitation control here because it's a natural thing to talk about. But when people come in severely agitated, they are physiologically deranged. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. They're in a dangerous situation. And by doing nothing, it, doing nothing is very, very dangerous. Because they're hyperthermic, they're agitated, they're wild and swinging. People are trying to hold them down. People get injured. They have needle sticks and bites and spits and mm-hmm. body fluids and all sorts of things. Plus, the longer this goes on, the more struggle there is. Yeah. The more chance of having that event that we all hear about in the newspapers. Right. You know, when people get taken down and and then the patient has a cardiac arrest and yeah. dies. Like, there's almost always a violent struggle immediately mm-hmm. preceding immediately preceding the cardiac arrest. Right? Yeah. Often a chokehold. Yeah. Now, is it and people have looked at is that actually the chokehold that caused it? Is there a brief hypoxia? That's not so clear. But there's always some type of violent struggle. Yeah. There's always a, a long period of metabolic agitation yeah. and physiologic demand. And who knows what the precipitating event is at the moment. But, yeah. But there is that. And so if we can control them quickly yeah yeah it's a safety thing really isn't it it's safe for the patient and it's safe for us and And sure you can use haldol and midazolam um midazolam is actually pretty quick too yeah but but the amount of midazolam i'd have to use to get them completely sated now i'm dealing with a lot more other adverse effects i don't want to deal with like exactly hypotension hypotension and apnea and, and if so, you don't know why they're agitated, I mean, you're making an assumption it's drugs. We don't know. It could be hypoxia. It could be all sorts of different yeah. things. So Sure. They could be septic. They exactly. Encephalitis, you name it. Yeah. So by giving them midazolam and having all those adverse effects, you might actually be making the situation a lot worse. Yeah. And, ketamine, yeah. and don't get me wrong. Ketamine is not a perfect drug. There's no mm-hmm. such thing as a perfect drug, right? Mm-hmm. Ketamine does have effects. Yeah. Um, you know, people can have adverse effects when you use it in high doses. Mm-hmm. Laryngospasm does happen. It's just not as bad or as common as people think. Yeah. People can become apneic, but... but um, Transiently. But, but nothing is gives you as much control as quickly 
and preserves their physiology as well as ketamine. So I think ketamine is the safest option. And because because they also make the point that you know doing doing nothing or using a slow acting drug mm-hmm. is I think is more risk. Mm-hmm. So the, the byline I use is that ketamine does have problems associated with it. Like there are adverse effects, you need to be ready for that. But ketamine is much more likely to get you out of trouble than it is to get you into trouble. So can I ask you a question about the, um, the procedure of intubating? Yes. And so we're talking about one milligram per kilogram beyond, right? Yep. If you have a sicker patient, like somebody who's hemodynamically unstable, and you're intubating them, does that change your dosage at all? It does, yeah. Hmm. So in the sick people, I often like to talk about the DSI approach, you know, delayed mm-hmm. sequence intubation. Yeah. This is something uh, Scott Weingart really, popu- yeah. really popularized. Right. But it, it, you get into an interesting discussion discussion of ketamine's effect on your physiology. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking about how ketamine supports the blood pressure. It does that by causing catecholamine release. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little, little bit of catecholamine release and also it prevents the adrenal glands from it prevents the reuptake of catecholamines. So the catecholamines that are out there stay out there longer yeah. and you release a little more as well. So that's why we get a positive blood pressure response. Mm-hmm. If you look at, there's studies out there where they, they look at the actual direct effect of ketamine on the heart, it's actually a negative inotrope. Oh, okay. Interestingly, yeah. we don't see that in the people we use it on for say procedural sedation, the blood pressures go up because these people have intact physiology loops, right? So mm-hmm. if I give the ketamine, you get those feedback mechanisms, you get the catecholamine release, blood pressure always goes up. Mm-hmm. This changes when you have someone who's really, you know, at the end of the road. Right. They're catecholamine depleted. Right. So, so that, someone who's septic, hypotensive, right. a septic right. person, they're up like they've been sick for three days and they're yeah. coming in you hypotensive. You look at them, they're going to arrest any second. That's a different situation. Right. Because when I give that ketamine, there's no catecholamines left to give right. from those adrenal glands. And so that's where the direct myocardial depressant effect of ketamine is takes over. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that balance is tipped towards hypotension. And so this is where we do see hypotension with ketamine. So in the sickest of the sick, mm-hmm. I think it is wise to cut down the ketamine toast to see how they respond, right. see where your blood pressure is at before you give them more. Right. That's exactly the same as we do with the DSI approach, although delayed sequence intubation is really more about the oxygenation piece, where yeah. someone comes in hypoxic, I don't want to sedate them right this second, I want right. to pre-oxygenate them first, but I can't get them pre-oxygenated because they're so agitated. Right. right. And that's where giving a low dose of ketamine, you take the edge off things, you can pre-oxygenate them, mm-hmm. um, and this was shown to be pretty effective. Mm-hmm. And so you get them in a better state where, okay, now their their saturations are up, they're completely pre-oxygenated, now I can give them the rest of the ketamine dose to do my my procedural sedation <laughs> called intubation. Exactly, right? yeah. Yes, and the other time you see ketamine, um, a, a ketamine, you know, rapid sequence intubation and mm-hmm. the blood pressure will go down is in the exsanguinating patient. Okay. No big surprise. Yeah. Right. You know. You can stimulate that heart all you want, but if it's empty, yeah. your blood pressure is still going down. Yeah. Right? And squirt the blood out faster. Yeah. 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 So and this is where I tell people you have to expect the blood pressure to go down. Absolutely. When, you see, when you're when you intubating someone who's at, on the end of the road, you know, on the, on the, right on that slippery slope, mm-hmm. we're expecting the blood pressure to go down. Because what happens when you intubate someone? The right? blood pressure goes down anyways. Don't yeah. They? So, so you've, you've taken blood pressure 
re return to the heart happens yeah. primarily with that negative intrathoracic pressure exactly. when you breathe in. Yeah. So negative intrathoracic pressure sucks blood exactly up into the heart. That's the that's the main way it happens. Mm -hmm. So now let me stick a tube in your throat and I'm going to push air into your lungs. You've reversed that physiology. Exactly. And so, of course, blood pressure goes down. Mm -hmm. Physics yeah. always wins. Physics yeah. wins, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Physics nerve yeah. over there. Yeah, so in the sickest of the sick, I use half the dose of ketamine, okay. see how they respond, because of that and then pick up from there. There's a, there yeah. is a way to approach this. Um, someone by the name of Miller did a study in using what they call the shock index. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, systolic blood pressure over the heart rate, mm -hmm. called the shock index. So... If your shock index is more than 0 0.9, that's called mm -hmm. a high shock index. They're more in shock. And that makes sense. So did I say that right? Heart rate yeah. over the blood pressure. So anyway, the higher your heart rate and the lower your blood, blood pressure, pressure, the more shock you are. It makes yeah. intuitive sense. Yeah. yeah. And 0.9 is that magic number. And he, he looked at giving ketamine to high shock index versus low shock index patients. Mm -hmm. And so... When you're trying to decide ahead of time, is that blood pressure going to go down in this patient? Right now, the best knowledge we have is look at the shock index. If they're more than 0.9, you can expect a higher chance of blood pressure going down. That's the patient you want to do that, you know, the same as the DSI approach. Right. Give them a half dose of the ketamine, see how they respond. Right. And then you can either keep giving them half doses until you get them exactly where you want them to be. I think the only Excellent. other issue about that really is when you're talking about some of those effects too, when you've got somebody who's really sick, is that you're doing other things as a pretreatment to support their uh, disease process, whatever that can be. So if you were talking about the exsanguinating patient, hopefully we're also replacing blood loss and things like that as a pretreatment prior to you know, doing the intubation itself so that we're actually trying very hard to kind of do all those other things. And I think sometimes people forget that piece of it, that, you know, if somebody's unwell, we're also doing all sorts of other types of interventions on top of the intubation. The intubation is just allowing us to have better gas exchange, but we're also doing all those other things as well, right? Excellent point. And this is yeah. something that has come into kind of more, more of the forefront in all our intubations. Like it's all about mm. the pre-oxygenation, right? Yeah. Like we're getting the high flow nasal cannula, you're getting the face exactly. mask. If you can wait a couple of minutes to get them nicely pre-oxygenated, why wouldn't you? Right? Exactly. Same as, same as true with someone who's physiologically deranged. Exactly. The so more you can, treating The more you can that. tune them up, the better. Yeah. Right? Don't always have that luxury. Yeah. But it should be, it should be on our minds. Intubation barely fixes your physiology. Exactly. It really makes things worse. And we I know with say a lot that. of my patients lately, I've been starting an norepinephrine infusion, a lower yeah. dose to start bringing their blood pressure up. And not obviously the bleeding person, but the septic person. Yeah. So that if there is that you drop when drop, you intubate them, all you do is turn the dose up. Yeah. You don't then start frantically running around trying yeah. to mix up norepinephrine and exactly. all that. Just part of being ahead. Yeah, right? so yeah, there's various ways people do that. We mm -hmm. we often have, you know, syringes, push, syringes of push, low, a push dose epinephrine yeah, and, exactly. and fen or phenylephrine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because yeah. post-intubation hypotension is so embarrassing. Yes. <laughs> but it's common enough that, <laughs> that like yeah. We, yeah. it shouldn't be that, oh, this happens once every 10 years. You should be prepared for it. It's like, yeah. this happens often enough that we should be prepared for it and not trying to mix low dose or a push dose epinephrine or phenylephrine the from the minute. nursing standpoint. When their pressure's 40, yeah. is not the time to figure out how to make push yeah. dose epi or phenylephrine. That should be syringes. part of your preparing. Absolutely. For, yeah. <laughs> 
You should have it all drawn out. Do you think you could comment or maybe debunk that whole myth that you shouldn't use ketamine in uh, in intubation with p- patients who have increased ICP? Because that was always kind of the debate right. out there from us old school <laughs> nurses that used to be I never something. heard that. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Actually, I do remember the days when... Oh, yes, when you were a young boy in shorts or whatever it is. I heard about those days. (laughs) So, yeah, that's one of the classic contraindications Mm -hmm. of ketamine use was increased intracranial pressure. We we now know that's really not true. Yeah. Once again, uh, there's an asterisk there. If you have pre-existing hydrocephalus, Mm -hmm. then it is true. Okay. And that, that's where that mythology actually came from. Oh, okay. Is some anesthetists were using ketamine as a general anesthetic. Okay. This is back in the 60s. All right. Okay. <laughs> remember, that, remember that ketamine was actually invented um, as an anesthetic for the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Like all these good drugs we have, they, 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 they almost all of them they have... They all come out of the war. Yeah. yeah. They, they almost all start out in military research. Yeah. Um, get taken up in the pre-hospital setting and then gradually make their way into the hospital. Ketamine was no different. Mm. So these anesthetists, and ketamine used to be an intubation drug drug in the continental U.S. And then they noticed, whoa, we get all these, we've got this population of patients where these got these huge, these neurosurgeons found these huge, gigantic increases in intracerebral pressure. So these well-meaning anesthetists said, do not use ketamine in people with increased ICP. ICP. Well, ah, they were doing it in patients who had hydrocephalus, and that was the original publications. It got expanded to everyone with, everyone yeah. with increased intracranial pressure. Right. Of course, who then writes the textbooks, the anesthesia textbooks, the same guys who had that experience, right. now it's become the rule of law. Yeah. It gets handed down, and that's how mythology happens. Right. And this has been looked at. There's really no basis for it. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have pre-existing hydrocephalus, ketamine actually causes your ICP to go, well, your cerebral perfusion pressure to go up. up and it probably yeah. causes your ICP to go down. Yeah. And once again, that makes sense because ketamine causes your systemic blood pressure to go up. And we all know your cerebral perfusion pressure is your ICP. Exactly. Taken off of your blood pressure. Exactly. So that's a good yeah, thing. Yeah, so ketamine is actually... Good your, for head injuries. Your go-to drug for head injury. <laughs> yeah, because it avoids hypotension, which... I love complete reversals that. like that. I know. You know it's period of five wonderful. years, don't use it to... Actually, this is the one you want to use. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and I also so have that heard way. that because of uh, the bronchodilator effects of ketamine, it's also a really good drug for patients if you're needing to intubate them if they have some respiratory like asthmatics or hopefully we don't need to intubate people with asthma and COPD but if we do because ketamine does have a little bit of bronchodilator effect it's actually not a bad uh, choice as well yeah if you have if you have if you have to if you have to go there (laughs) if you have to go there's no better choice yeah I mean the physiology for those asthma patients and CBD it always gets worse just because of the presence of the tube yeah uh, but ketamine is better than any other choice right, because you yeah. do get that bronchodilation. Yeah. Um, interestingly, one of the side effects of ketamine is hypersalivation, right? Oh, yeah. And so this is actually a big advantage in those COPD asthma patients because you get that those bronchial secretions that yeah. help mobilize all the mucus and you can suction that out. You can actually improve their physiology a bit that way. Oh, 
Interesting. So I guess you could call it making the best of a really, 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 bad, really bad situation. situation. Yeah. And I'm not recommending uh, <laughs> that asthma or COPD. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. I think maybe the last thing we would like to talk about is perhaps some of the new um, different ways that we're using ketamine or we're hearing about. And I'm not sure what the studies are finally saying about them or if there are studies. Because I have, I think you even mentioned it, um, Gary, when we were talking about using ketamine for depression, uh, which was interesting to me, especially with all of this talk at the moment about, you know, we've had so many suicides recently and, and talking about depression and having good ways of treating it, not, you know, just having different things out there. And I think you mentioned yeah. ketamine being used for depression. Yeah, there's a boatload of research coming out with ketamine and depression. Really, really, really interesting stuff. Ketamine given um, intravenously mm -hmm. um, as well as intranasally in low doses. This is another use of very low dose ketamine. There's dozens and dozens of studies and it's been picked up by research groups, you know, funded by the NIH. And you see the same six names on, you know, 90% of the research that yeah. comes out there. But all of the effects, it seems to be pretty consistent mm -hmm. that when you use ketamine for depression, and they have different scales that you can measure depression on, and in particular, suicidality. Mm -hmm. The effect is really rapid. And this is where ketamine is really exciting, where mm -hmm. you people have um, a positive effect on their suicidality, not more suicidal, I meant less suicidal, yeah. Yeah. within hours, oh. as opposed to the classic antipsychotics and antidepressants that take weeks to work. Right. So you, you can make someone feel better within hours. The problem is, there's two problems with the research. One is that all the numbers are really small, so it's hard mm -hmm. to say that it's definitive. They're very, very small studies. And the other problem is that the effect seems to be transient. Mm. So by the time several, you know, four or five days, up to a week goes by, they're right back where they started. Okay. And so that, that's why ketamine is still not mainstream for that yet. Mm -hmm. um, I suspect it may, may, it may become mainstream. Yeah. Uh, but there's the fact that the effect is transient, mm -hmm. so so it does it doesn't solve your downstream problems. Right. And that's why people are looking at maybe we just need to give the ketamine repetitively, but then right. you get into the side effect issues. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so people are looking at different analogs of ketamine. Um, ketamine causes effects on a, a, you know the NMDA receptors and glutamate is in there. Oh yeah. And so they're looking for other drugs that act on those same receptors to see if you can get those antidepressant effects without the adverse ketamine effects. So that's all stuff that's coming down the line. So right now, ketamine is not first line for that, but it's pretty exciting. And I, I was actually hoping to get it as an emergency department drug. Yeah. You know, very selfishly thinking, if I can make you not suicidal in a couple of hours, I can get you the hell out of my department. Yes, Onto exactly. the psych ward, and they can fix you there. Yeah. Um, I'm long I, had trouble convincing, I had trouble convincing my psychiatrist that that was a good <laughs> idea. So, so but, that, but things take... What do they say? Right. 10, 20 years before Absolutely. Mm -hmm. before they really start to fil filter through. So and this still so it's still early days. Yeah. But there's there's definitely something there and definitely something you're going to hear a lot about in the future. So low dose ketamine for suicidality depression. Absolutely. Mm. Is, is there Listen anything else trendy coming with ketamine? Any other patient groups that are sort of well, just, we're starting to use it with? Well, my recent my recent interest for ketamine has more, like I said before, has been more in the analgesia mm -hmm. realm, and I've been looking at taking ketamine more into the pre-hospital setting, mm. because in the emergency department, like in the hospital, we have access to so many people and mm -hmm. respiratory therapists and IVs that we can give just about anything we want, 
but there's a lot of pre-hospital providers that are a lot more limited. You're looking at one of them. So. <laughs> <laughs> a man of your skills? No, no. But, um, but it is. It's a, different, it's a different story when you're on the yeah. side of a mountain with mm-hmm. one other you know, search and rescue person or even in the field with your partner and possibly giving you know, Versed and morphine and, and the, the poor monitoring that happens when you're in the and back the, of a stretcher or a ski toboggan or something. and Give them two respiratory depressants, throw them in the sled and look and, at yeah. them and, five feet away. Yeah, yeah. And, and now you have a four-hour slog out of a, a mountain and yeah. how often are you really watching them, right? Yeah, yeah. so this has led to my, my, my most recent kind of research um, emphasis and that is uh, intranasal ketamine for pre-hospital crews and especially for basic trained crews, not yeah. not the advanced care paramedics or the critical care paramedics who have access to all sorts of drugs and mm-hmm. other routes to give things. But you want something that's easy to give, yeah. reliable, and can't cause anything bad to happen. Once again, this idea comes from the U.S. military. It was actually, they looked at intranasal ketamine as a battlefield analgesic. And it made total sense because these these medics are running out into the field with very little on their back, a small backpack to an injured soldier. They want to be able to give something quickly and easily, but still allow that soldier to aid in their self-extrication from the field. So you don't want to gork them out. You don't want them to stop breathing because then that just complicates everything. It makes everything worse. And so they looked at intranasal ketamine as a battlefield analgesic. And... In the days when we were horribly overcrowded and people, and I was doing, we were doing most of our medicine in the waiting room and hallways, I was reading this paper and thinking to myself, that battlefield sounds a lot like my emergency department. Mm-hmm. And so we did, it might, have, it might have been the first intranasal ketamine for analgesia study in a hospital, thinking that if we can show that intranasal ketamine works for analgesia, we can take the ketamine, take the analgesic out to the people in the waiting room because we can't get the people from the waiting room into our department. Mm-hmm. So my byline for that one was, uh, if I can't get the people to the analgesia, I'll take the analgesia to the people. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And, that was, and that was highly successful. And then I subsequently realized that the more austere your environment is, the more it makes sense to use ketamine yeah. and the more it makes sense to use something easy like an intranasal delivery system. Because for intranasal, the only special skill you need is... You know, if you have an opposable thumb, <laughs> exactly. push, push fast. Yeah. That, that, that's the, that's the that's skill all you need. <laughs> the only technology you need is a simple, a two cent syringe and a 12 cent atomizer. Mm-hmm. So the, the technology cost is low. The technique is dead simple. You could, you, you could teach my mother to do it. Mm-hmm. And you take it out into a place. Not saying your mother isn't overly intelligent. <laughs> She's I'll very bet, intelligent. I'll bet we could teach her to start an ID as well, but she like she's gonna like it simple. So <laughs> she's kind of deaf, so if you're short, the thumb. Thing. Okay, <laughs> yeah, perfect. But um, the thing that makes it work as a pre-hospital, or or I broaden that to austere environment analgesic, because because we've done studies on local ski mountains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I've looked at doing it in places like you know Nepal and other third third world third countries, countries where yeah. they they don't have monitors and they don't even have analgesics. The more austere the environment, the more it makes sense to use intranasals because it's easy, right? And it's reliable. It's simple. You can carry it anywhere. The same is true of ketamine. It makes a load of sense to use ketamine in an austere environment because you can never make someone stop breathing. It can't happen. Mm-hmm. And so, so the, the kill potential is zero. 
Mm-hmm. And that's to me that was really important. If you're going to give an analgesic to someone in a setting that you expect them to be completely unmonitored, mm-hmm. and even by people who don't have advanced airway skills, so there better be zero percent chance of actually doing serious harm. Right. And for me, the intranasal ketamine, the two together, fulfills that. I can never ever make someone stop breathing. I absolutely can give them analgesia, and I can do it without the person giving it needing any special skills. And to me, that's why it made a whole lot of sense. That's great. And from a triage perspective, frankly, when you have so many patients waiting in the waiting room who are uncomfortable, I think it is difficult for us, again, from a humane perspective, this is such a great option because if it's safe, we've run it past a physician and said, do you think that this would be an appropriate thing for us to do? They could be in the waiting room. They don't need to be monitored. And we can actually provide them some care analgesic while they're waiting and that to was, me it's yeah. far kinder than what we have that exists yeah. right now well, it even allows you to go home at the end of your shift and not think all i did today was prolong people's misery, misery. in the waiting room yeah. like that's the the moral distress of a triage yeah. nurse usually Definitely. revolves around i just looked at people in pain all day and had no yeah. options for them it's so it's tough out there at the yeah. triage desk yeah yeah and, and and the other reason it makes so much more sense is that intranasals are better given while seated in a chair. So right. don't have a stretcher, no, no problem. No problem, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it makes it makes so much sense from a practical point of view mm-hmm. and from a physiologic point of view. And that's the way I really I really pushed it. So Yeah, so, excellent. That's great. Now, do you think you can summarize that into some key points there, Landon? Oh, I can't summarize that into key <laughs> points. That was probably one of the most exciting uh, podcasts I've ever done. done. Well, I think probably both, both we Monique say... and I are sitting here just like staring at Gary like, <laughs> oh my God, tell me more. I think that if I were to summarize it, I think that we would talk about dosage, that yeah. if it's a point... 0.5 and below, that's the analgesic dose, and you should start, start around 0.2. 0.2. Um, that you want to avoid the middle zone, and complete dissociation is one milligram per kilogram uh, and above. Yes, and you yes. have a ceiling, which means that you can't get more dissociative than complete. So regardless of how much you give, you're on, you only have a ceiling. So I think I would say that is definitely one of the big major points. The other one is that when you're doing a procedural sedation, so you can teach an old nurse new tricks, uh, procedural sedation, that it is probably more beneficial to use both propofol and ketamine in lower doses. If you are intubating a sicker patient, that you might choose to use a lower dose of ketamine. And that there is a very rapid effect of you're using it for complete agitation, that we can give it IM through clothes and big, big dose. doses. Big so doses. big doses. So go big if you've got somebody who's agitated, you want to take them down fast, it will work within five minutes. And then look out for some of the future um, exciting new ways of looking at ketamine, whether that's in the pre-hospital in your treatment waiting room for analgesic and then this new thing with depression that might be kind of exciting down the road type things yeah anything else you guys wanted to add or did i do not too you bad you did not too bad that, that's pretty awesome can i can i, can I bring you with me to my talks no I'm problem yeah. anytime don't worry anytime. when you show up places the yeah. only thing they'll ask you now is oh where's monique <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been living this dream for a few years now exactly well we want to thank gary it's very nice of you to you should see the spread he's put out in front of us. And he made us pretty darn good coffee in beautiful mm-hmm. mugs. 
Uh, so we thank him very much for sharing his knowledge. It's very exciting. Pleasure, um, yeah. yeah. There's so much to talk about. Maybe we could do this again. I know. Right we could, totally could. He could be a recurring guest uh, on our podcast. Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> that would be. Yeah, I know. All right. Well, Great. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Any final thoughts? Yeah, from you. Thanks so much, you guys. I love talking ketamine. So yeah, and uh, <laughs> we can uh, tell. Oh, you're going to tell them about the link, Gary. Yeah, Don't forget. I, yeah, I was going to put a plug in that. Um, I'm sure. Shameless, to... shameless plug. Go ahead. <laughs> shameless plug. <laughs> well, I don't get money for it, so it's no. not that. It's not that shameless. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I'm happy to uh, I'm happy to talk ketamine with anyone anytime, as you guys probably know. Put a plug in for the UBC Department of Emergency Medicine Network, mm-hmm. which is a recently put together online resource, um, not just sedation and analgesia, but all things to do with emergency medicine, pre-hospital and otherwise. It's meant to be a multidisciplinary resource where you can mm-hmm. ask questions, get resources. Right now, the only problem with the site is they put me in the other category. <laughs> oh. I, oh, dear. I, I wanted my own category. They yes. Put, they put me under other. Oh, dear. Oh, oh my. Well, we'll, oh, talk, we'll talk to them about that. It's great. But, well, now you're on our podcast. Now you might get famous. a little bit more. <laughs> but, but anyway, but, but seriously, it's, a, um, it's, a continue, it's continuing to be developed. Become a, okay. I think it'll become a very, very rich source of, source of information and also kind of you know, semi-real-time resource where people can ask questions and mm. and banter back and forth and paranoias concerns and and i love a good argument if you think i'm full of uh can, can yes I, you can, can say i can it. say it okay <laughs> you can say it okay if you think i'm full of shit and you want to call me out i love it bring it yeah. on i, I love a good I love a good argument yeah excellent okay then and we'll so put we'll, the we'll put the website on or the our, link on there the link on yeah. our website well thank you this is monique and i'll see you next month i guess Oh, I don't know why I had to say that. Of course, I'm the only woman here. Of course, I'm Monique. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm just going to say goodbye. All right. Goodbye. Pleasure, everyone. Thanks. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast. And also find us on Facebook at Nursum Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education, www.prneducation.ca.